Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, this is, I think, going to be an incredibly useful episode for anybody who's ever had tough or tricky moments in their lives. In other words, it's going to be useful for anybody currently drawing breath on planet Earth right now. We've got a powerhouse duo on the show. Tokni Rinpoche is one of the greatest living Tibetan masters who has a whole toolbox of techniques for dealing with difficult moments, habitual patterns, and common meditation obstacles. He will be in conversation with Danny Goleman, or Daniel Goleman, as he's often professionally known. His friends call him Danny. He is a trained scientist and science writer, perhaps best known for his landmark book, Emotional Intelligence. Together, Tsokni Rinpoche and Danny Goleman have just produced a book called Why We Meditate, which will be out in a few weeks and is currently available for pre-order. This is the fourth and final installment of our series called The Art and Science of Keeping Your Shit Together. In each episode, we bring together a meditative adept or Buddhist scholar and a respected scientist. The idea is to give you the best of both worlds, to arm you with both modern and ancient tools for regulating your emotions. In this conversation, we talked about the single word that Sokni Rinpoche believes captures the most challenging aspect of modern life. Two of the biggest obstacles for meditators, especially early meditators, what Rinpoche calls the drop-it practice, his term, which I found especially meaningful, beautiful monsters, he'll explain that, the four steps of the handshake practice for meeting difficult emotions and being okay with them, why reasoning with your feelings doesn't work, how to experience a fundamental okayness independent of external conditions, a personal story from Rinpoche about being with one of his own difficult habits, what Rinpoche calls the three speed limits, and finally, belly breathing. And at each step along the way, Danny Goleman is going to chime in with what the science says about these various techniques. Okay, we'll get started with Tokni Rinpoche and Danny Goleman right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. 
it's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Sokni Rinpoche and Danny Goldman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Rinpoche, let me start with you. You you say in this new book that a major part of your inspiration for writing the book or co-authoring the book was that you were finding that your Western students were intellectually grasping what you were teaching, but they weren't really getting it in their bones. Can you say more about that? Yes. At the beginning of my tour to U.S., I give a lot of teaching to cognitive-based understanding, and I thought it went very well. And then over the years, I think the communication between the cognitive mind in the feeling world are a little bit disconnected. So I thought, I think we have to connect from our mind to the feeling world that the feeling can also feel the same understanding of the cognitive mind's information. So I developed some kind of, you know, dropping into the body and open our heart and then can receive the teaching in conjunction with the understanding and feeling transformation. So you develop some practices that we'll go through over the course of this interview to get people out of their heads and into their bodies. I'm curious, though, what do you think's going on in terms of the differences that you're seeing between your Eastern students and your Western students? Why is it that the Western students were apparently so good at grasping the techniques and the ideas intellectually, but there was some block between the intellectual understanding and the more visceral understanding? I think is the culture and the modern influence, speedy and goal-oriented, and everything went into the head and trying to grasp in the intellectual way. And there's not enough time to bring into the body and need some time to digest or open. I think that is a lacking. You say in the book, I made a note of this, and I'm turning to it now because you just used the word. But in the book, you say, if I had to pick, and this is a quote, if I had to pick one word to capture the most challenging aspect of our modern lifestyle, it would be speediness. Can you say more about speediness? I found there's a three speed limits, cognitive, fast thinking mind, and then physical body movement speed. And there is, I call subtle body and energetic feeling connected with the emotion. And that is very much speedy in the world, especially in the modern world. Danny, while we're on this kind of high level, setting the table 
piece of the interview. Do you have any comments on on any of the foregoing that you want to jump in and share? Well, uh, Rinpoche keeps referring to the cultural difference. And I think since we're, we are in this culture, you may remember moments when you came home from school as a kid and your parents asked you, how did you do on the test? They didn't say, who was nice to you today? Who are you kind to today? They asked a completely different question, which implies conditional love. We will love you if you do well. That also, the verse of that is, we won't love you if you don't do well. I mean, children get shaped by the culture. So we become driven, particularly those of us who become, quote, successful in the normal sense of the word. But I think part of that success is what Rinpoche is referring to as speediness, where you feel too driven to notice the people around you, what's going on in your body. I think this is one reason that mindfulness has such value for people today, because it brings them back to that. And Rinpoche has a really wonderful methods for helping people find what I would say is an organic speed limit rather than the one that's been imposed. As I keep promising, we will get to some of these techniques, but let me just ask one last contextual question here. And this is for you, Rinpoche. In the book, you say that the two biggest obstacles among the early meditators that you've seen in your teaching are one, and I'm quoting here again, my mind is wild and I can't find calm. And two, my most troubling thoughts just keep coming back and coming back. Can you say a little bit more about these two principal obstacles? I think for me, calmness is not in the mind. Calmness is in the body, especially the subtle body. When I say subtle body, it's not the cognitive thinking, it's not a physical. In between, there's an energy subtle body. I think when we disturb that subtle body, then you cannot find calmness in your mind unless you have to bring calm in the body then the mind starts to become more clear and then meditation works very well. And also in general, whatever you want to do, there's a clarity in your mind. Okay. Second one is I call repeating uh, thoughts as a part of a reaction towards to first thought and second thought is reacting. So there's a way I sort of developed practice called handshake practice to aware of that reaction and stay with that and not doing anything. Stay with that either emotional reaction or cognitive reaction. Be with that reactive mind and relax. And then that will open up the thought. There's some magic. When aware of that reactive thought, relax that. Then that also open up because everything is impermanent. And where there's impermanent, there's a space. Dan, could I add something? Of course. Anytime you want to jump in, Danny, you don't need to ask permission. So you asked about the thoughts that keep coming back. And it was important in the evolution of Rinpoche's methodology for the Westerner that he had a series of conversations with my wife, Tara Bennett-Goleman, who's a pioneer in integrating mindfulness with a kind of psychodynamic cognitive therapy. And she, in her book, Emotional Alchemy, which Rinpoche listened to, lists like the top 10 such repetitive thoughts like fear of abandonment in a relationship or a sense of emotional deprivation, no one cares about me, or 
self-sacrifice. There are these patterns that we develop early in life. And she talked about how to transform them, how mindfulness, for example, can help you not be so powerfully taken over by them. And Rinpoche will later talk about, I think, if you want to, his beautiful monster concept, which grew out of uh, those conversations. So basically, Tara helped him understand that Westerners have these patterns that we experience as repetitive thoughts and feelings, and then how to work with them to transform them. And then he, he took it in his own direction. While I have you, Danny, Rinpoche keeps making references to subtle body. He did define it, but I, I want to bring you in as the representative of science here to maybe see if you have anything to add on that. Well, Dan, as you know, science does not know everything. One of the things science knows nothing about is the subtle body. It's a concept that you find in yoga and you find in Tibetan Buddhism well-developed. It's an ancient understanding of a very, I have to use the word subtle again, energy level that matters to us enormously, which Western science is frankly oblivious to. And so I look to people like Rinpoche as experts on it, but I can't think of a single Western scientist, maybe Richie Davidson, who knows a thing about it. But given all of your training, both in the meditation or contemplative world and in the scientific and research and journalistic world, the concept lands for you. It makes sense to you. Well, you know, you think about how emotions come to us. They come to us unbidden out of somewhere else, right? All of a sudden you feel angry or sad or whatever it may be. And I think that there is a level of visceral, is the word you used, biological, emotional reactivity seething within us that perhaps has to do with subtle body. That may be where they come from. And I also think that these systems, yogic systems in Tibet and India, both say it's extremely important to be able to manage your subtle body in order to make deep progress in spiritual practice. But I can't claim to be an expert. I'll always take that as an answer. <laughs> <laughs> we come from a tradition where not knowing is venerated. Okay, so let's, we've been dancing around the, the various techniques, but let's start where you start in the book with the first technique that you offer Rinpoche, which is called drop it. What is drop it practice? Dropping is all the extra worry carried by mind and also in the subtle body, in the gross body, I call backpack. So it's the distorted phenomena and the leftover in your system. And we're still taking that as a part of our being. So I think in order to really open up, there's something you can drop. So the mind is all up here and holding on the unnecessary hope and fear. Those hope and fear are not relevant into our life, but it's still part of imprint and we're holding on that and we don't know what to do with that. So there's an exercise is like a breathing out and the hand putting down and the attitude is let it go. Whatever happens, happens. Whatever doesn't happen, so what? Almost like, who cares? And if you want to make a mantra, 
So what? Who cares? Because we have love and compassion in our heart, but sometimes we care too much. So I make this exercise. We let it go everything first as much as we can. Then we can nurture the healthy love, healthy care, healthy insight to help yourself, to help others. So my one is like this. If you're holding something in your hand, I think better to put it down. Then you can hold next one nicely. But while you're holding the leftover, no use anymore, is kind of distorted. And then if you want to hold new things, there's no room, there's no space. So first drop means drop all your concern, whether I'm good, no good, right, wrong, people love me, not love me. All this extra anxious conscious just drop and breathe out. Stay there for a while. Just one, two, three, four seconds. And aware of that freedom. Because you still have a conscious. You still knowingness is there. Awareness is there. Except you are not holding extra baggage. So let me see if I can repeat that back to you a little bit. I imagine this is a practice you can do in formal meditation or in the course of your daily life. Yes, both. Yes, both. So in either context, you might notice, oh, I'm completely caught up in anger or fear or some difficult emotion. And you can do this kind of radical thing of who cares? And people listening couldn't see your gesticulations, but you were using your arms as you did this practice. It's almost like you can physically mimic the dropping of whatever junk is in your backpack onto the ground and then take a deep breath and enjoy a few nanoseconds of freedom from whatever it is you were carrying. Correct. Beautifully done. Yes. And then you stay there for a while, not breathing in, breathe out. The moment you drop from your head, and a little bit shake your body and then hand drop into your knee and then like this. And then stay there for a while. And aware of that beautiful freedom. And if you can do time to time that, and that could be your reference point, that there is clear, open, without useless backpack. But to be clear, Rinpoche, this exercise is not going to solve whatever problem you have. It will solve some problem, but not everything. Sorry. Next technique, we need handshake practice because some are deeper than just dropping. We need a transformation. So we need a kindness, insight, mindfulness, awareness, and be with the beautiful monster I call left our imprint in our subtle body or our unconscious. So we have to meet them, stay with them, listen. Many emotional imprints is in the body, not only in the mind. So I make difference between cognitive mind base, a feeling body or emotional base. Danny, as you know, the way the book is structured, obviously you know that since you co-wrote it, the way the book is structured, Rinpoche will offer a teaching and then you'll swoop in with the science. So 
swoop away on this one, on the drop-it practice? So, you know, Western science has studied anxiety for year, decades, actually, and they've come up with several different kinds of worry, one of which is extremely unhelpful. It's called technically rumination, where you think about that same thing that upsets you over and over, and you wake up at two in the morning thinking about it, and it's the first thought you have the next day. And it doesn't help because it doesn't solve the problem. Useful worry, in contrast, thinks about something you can do, a step you can take, and then you can leave the worry and then take the step. That's quite healthy. That's functional worry. I don't know that worry is even the right word. It's planning. So just contrast those two. And what Rinpoche is talking about is the worst kind, the rumination, and what to do with it just to give ourselves a break from it. And it makes very good scientific sense. Of course, dropping something for a couple of seconds isn't going to solve the problem. It's just going to give you respite from it. And in terms of the methodology that Rinpoche deploys in his approach to meditation, those seconds are very precious because they make it clear that there is a way of being, as he said, which is just open awareness that's not occupied by word thoughts, and that, that will be built on. Can you define open awareness? I think it's been well-defined in the mindfulness area by simply paying attention to what's going on now without judging. But he adds actually something a little more profound, without worrying, without even maybe thinking, just open, aware of awareness. Can I say something here? Of course. Neither of you needs to ask for permission. You could just talk. <laughs> I'm scared of you, so I should ask. <laughs> uh, no joking. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. So open awareness is like this, right after you're dropping, and then you find some freedom there, not glued by all the stuff. And then you're aware of that openness and be with that openness for some time until the next glue comes in. Many things you can let it go by dropping, but some are deeper than that. Then we need a next practice to honor that deeper part of the difficulties. Could be many things, as Danny mentions, top tens, top twenties. So which is the most prominent to you? And then invite awareness from cognitive mind and aware of our body first. And within the body, then there is the difficulty rigid. Could be sadness, could be hollowness, could be big regret, many things. And then the hand of the awareness go there and stay next to it. Don't do anything. Just listen from the wounded or difficult feeling of emotions and be closer and closer. And then one day from the emotion start to open up. Then I call first is meeting, second is conversation, and third is become liberation, opens, and friend. So is what you're describing here the handshake practice that is described in the book? Yes. Before we go dive into this, because I want to hear more, Rinpoche, about 
the whys and wherefores and hows of the handshake practice. But let's talk for a moment about beautiful monsters. Where did you get this term and what do you mean by it? In our Buddhist tradition, we have uh, two habitual patterns. One is called karmic habitual patterns coming from past life and influence our present existence. Another one is from learn habitual pattern from childhood up to now. In that learn habitual pattern, some are healthy, some are not healthy. An unhealthy one I call is a distorted habitual pattern. So I say beautiful monster. It feels real, but it carries distorted messages. It is real, but not true. So in the West, I think we refer to these as our demons. And, you know, for me, some of my demons are selfishness and anger and fear. And I've come over time to see that these demons that I was at war with for many decades were actually trying to help me, but not doing it the right way. And so when you talk about beautiful monsters, that's where I go in my mind. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? Yes, but I think there is beauty in that. Of course, yes, because they're trying to help you. Yeah, trying to help you. And then if you understand well, then it will help others. You'll understand others. And then, you know, sometimes the difficult, beautiful monster, you know, if you resolve the difficulties, it opens up. And I think there's tremendous joy and compassion arise. And you understand, especially your friend, your partners, your parents, your children, uh, they are having the uh, same difficulties. But if you don't transform them and you are under the power of that completely, that is like, as you say, it can be demon, but not necessarily. There's a beauty there. So the real beauty, in your view, is that when you make peace with these monsters or demons or whatever you want to call them, it's the wellspring of compassion. It allows you to understand everybody else who has, of course, their own beautiful monsters or demons or whatever word you want to use. Correct. Because we all have some kind of beautiful monster. Sometimes I say, if you don't have a beautiful monster, you are not normal. So we have two, three, four, five, and then some are there connected. So if you know one how to transform, wow, there is a small liberation. I'm scared of height. So now I handshake practice. I think cognitive clarity is important. This is a leftover from past things. It's in my system, but it is not me. It's just a leftover. I know I respect that, but I don't need to believe 100%. We have to separate identity from that beautiful monster. The soon we are free of this identity, there is a space. My mind and the beautiful monster, there's openness. So can help each other. If everything lumped with the oneness, and then there's no space for opening. After the break, Rinpoche will talk us through the steps of the aforementioned 
handshake practice. You'll learn why reasoning with strong feelings is likely to be a losing strategy. And Rinpoche will share a personal story about how he has dealt with one of his own difficult emotional patterns or imprints, as he calls them, a fear of heights. After this. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. In the West, we have this notion of slaying our dragons, but you're proposing a very different technique for dealing with difficult emotions, and that is the aforementioned handshake practice. Can you describe how we would do this practice? As I understand it, there are four steps. First thing is there's two hands, the cognitive hand and the feeling-based hand. Cognitive-based hand, there's a, a, we usually call is a mind. There's a knowing mind, thinking mind, awareness, and a clarity. So when I say drop, drop means that the repeated thinking mind drop, but not the knowing, not the awareness, not the clarity. So we invite awareness to aware of your feelings. I think this is very important. Many people, they cannot feel themselves. They know there's some feeling, but they are not really connect or aware of their feeling, even the physical feeling. So keep aware of your feeling. And then one day you feel your feeling. It's not that you know your feeling. And when you feel your feeling, and then connection with the awareness and feeling together and handshake the beautiful monster. So there's a kindness and there's an insight. There's a four key points, not suppressing, not indulging, and not running away from the beautiful monster, stay in the same room and not bringing some antidote to the beautiful monster that you are not okay. And I'm going to fix you by this special method. And that will not work also because some woundedness is there. So only kindness, try not to do these four key points and stay in that feeling, doing nothing but aware and feel the pain of the beautiful monster. No rejecting, no holding, no suppressing, try not to fix. I think it's a compassion, it's a kind. I call non-judging is the kindness. So I think first, our beautiful monster needs some kindness. And after that, slowly open up. That is the nature 
of everything. If we try not to disturb, slowly it would open up. It's like, a, you know, I saw a lot of movies, the horse trainers, sometimes the difficult horse doesn't like human. So the person go there, do nothing. Just be there, being in front of the horse. Be calm and relax and go closer and closer and closer. Some point the horse will trust you because you're being there. So being with beautiful monster is first step. That is called, I call kindness. The mind need to be there. Awareness need to be there with the feeling of beautiful monster before you do anything. Waiting is kindness. Listening is kindness. Doing nothing is kindness. I really want to transform the human blockages. If you give amazing lecture from your mind to the feeling, but feeling will not feel that way because you're giving lecturing, you're giving insight. We give so much to beautiful monster trying to open up. I think that beautiful monster is sick of our knowledge, our method. So anything coming from mind is shut down and there's no chance to communicate each other. We always command, we always give order to the feeling world. We never listen to our feeling. We're scared of listening feeling. And that is not the way. We must listen. If you cannot listen, then you go a little bit far away, maybe two feet away, three feet away, and just stay nearby, calm. Don't give any story. Just relax and calm. Then I think beautiful monster might invite you and join together, and that can happen. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's about getting out of the mode of trying to fix anything. And this handshake practice can be done in formal meditation or any time in our lives. And the four steps are one, dropping, which we discussed a few moments ago, taking a moment to notice what's happening and to actively drop it. Step two is meeting, seeing clearly what your beautiful monster is up to in any moment. Step three is being with, without trying to interfere, bringing your awareness to whatever difficult emotion is at play in your body and in your mind at any given moment. And then step four is waiting. And all of this you described as kindness. You have warm intentions vis-a-vis your difficult emotions, vis-a-vis your demons, vis-a-vis your beautiful monsters. So am I, am I restating this with some degree of accuracy? Correct. And eventually, there's one step come. It's called communication. How do you communicate? It's not true. You communicate to the beautiful monster. You're caring of the misunderstanding of this imprint. Somewhere it happened, but you're still carrying this in, until now. I think it's you know, time to let you go that. Are you talking to the feeling? Not like a giving order. And then some point from the feeling from the beautiful monster will feel, oh, I, uh, yeah, I should let it go. It's not real. Yeah, I'm carrying a wrong perception. Ah, I can find openness here. No one is judging me now. Enough love that I can express myself. No one hammering on my head. Usually, the a difficult emotional start to express, then we give a hammer 
suppress or indulging or run away. You are not good. I don't like it. I don't want to feel this way. I'm going to go somewhere else to escape that. Then it's the wrong direction. So now you're not doing all of that. And the difficult, beautiful monster start to trust your mind. And then mind can bring all the great understanding in the world. And the mind and the feeling start to communicate. Not only mind is telling to the feeling, feeling also express, and there is a neutral understanding. Wow, that is the beginning of transformation. Danny, what's the science? Because, you know, engaging in a handshake with your beautiful monster, that's not scientific language, obviously, although I think it's quite beautiful. What does the research suggest about what the efficacy of these kinds of practices might be? Dan, when I looked at the literature, I was surprised to find that the literature, the scientific research, actually really supports this approach. And from a Western point of view, demons, as you call it, we're talking about learned dysfunctional emotional patterns. And we all have them, as Rinpoche says. It's not normal in the West not to have them. And psychotherapy is based on helping people deal with them, for sure. But what I found when I looked at the literature is that there's some wonderful work at Stanford University on acceptance. There, a, a scientist named Philippe Golden had people who have social phobia, who are just mortified of you know, speaking in front of other people and so on. He had them think about the worst scenario they could imagine and then just be with the feelings in an accepting, non-judgmental way. And it turned out that it really helped them not be controlled by those feelings. It was a very strong study, and it completely supports this. By the way, Rinpoche mentioned in passing Horse Whispering. The movie he was referring to as The Horse Whisperer. And Tara's second book was Mind Whispering, which talks about how to use these methods to transform these patterns. There's another source I'd like to acknowledge John Wellwood, who was a student of Rinpoche, talked about the danger of spiritual bypassing, which is using your meditation technique to suppress rather than deal with and transform. And I think uh, Rinpoche, he acknowledges in the book that this too was an influence in his thinking about all of this, because it's a big danger. Like when I first meditated, I was just dealing with undergraduate anxiety, and it was a relief to not feel it for a while. But you don't go anywhere near the beautiful monsters, the demons, or the patterns if you do that. Also in the West, and I don't know how much data there is to support this approach, but we've talked on this show about a style of therapy called internal family systems, or IFS, where you're cultivating a relationship with the various characters in your mind. I believe the term that IFS practitioners use is your parts. And in this kind of therapy, you're actively in dialogue with your parts, or that's just another way of saying your beautiful monsters. Have you heard of this? And, and do you have any thoughts about how well it rhymes with what Rinpoche is teaching? Well, I don't really know that much about IFS, Dan, so I won't comment. But I will say that there's another therapeutic approach, acceptance and gratitude therapy, 
which is this kindly awareness of your patterns, which has been actually quite well validated and is quite, I would say, synergistic with Rinpoche's approach. All of this militates against militating and the Western idea of slaying your dragons. It seems like all of the research you're looking at would strongly suggest that slaying is a fool's errand, that the, the better approach is a, a sort of befriending. Absolutely, yes. Rinpoche, back to you. Another key practice you describe in the book is called essence love. What is that? After dropping and after handshake practice, then whatever difficult, beautiful monster start to open up and you find some space, some open, and then we are connecting in our, one of the innate nature, and sometimes I call is a birthright. There is a love, there is a spark, there is a fine joy within us intrinsically. So that start to show up because the whole thing is start to balance. And when you, we aware of that, essence love, and be with that and nurture that with a mindful and awareness. And slowly, slowly that grew. Sometimes I call grow, sometimes it's express. And then it express loving kindness and compassion. But if we lost that, if we lost that connection, then instead of well-being of essence love, we feel hollow. Somehow you feel there's hollow and lonely without any particular reason. And I think that is modern problem. We give too much value outside and trying to make happy ourselves. And instead of connecting with our basic happiness, I call essence love. And that is happy without any reason. Happy by itself. Love by itself. And once we found that, we found inner strength, inner well-being. Then whatever we engage outside, I call extra happiness. Basic happiness, extra happiness. But we look too much on external happiness. I don't think that is the right direction. I think we need a both. So the essence love is just basically feel okay. I'm okay. Difficult things happening around you, but deep down, I'm okay. Why are you okay? There's no reason. I'm sure the cognitive mind will ask you, why are you okay? And then you answer, I don't know. It's just okay. I think we should value that. That, like a child heart. When we are young, we have that. But then some point, we lost connection from that. So I want to open all the blockages and reconnect with that well-being of essence love, and then from there express loving kindness, compassion to the world, then I think it will minimize unnecessary suffering in the world. So this fundamental okayness that you describe, this happiness for no reason, it sounds great. I'll have what she's having. But how do we access that? What are the actionable practices that we can do to get there. Yeah. Get there is handshake with you. Don't feel I'm okay. Aware of that feeling. 
and handshake that, let it open up. Then there is okayness is there. Oh, I don't understand. Oh, so difficult this one. How to practice this one? All this thought, reaction, emotion, handshake that. And stay with that. Let that open up. Then there's a well-being. There's a freedom. There's a love. So the way to go there is connect with not okay feeling. Meet the not okay feeling and be with that and be patient and wait. And sooner or later, it will open up. And then there is a big, then there is a essence of love smiling to you because it's your nature. It is your intrinsic. Yeah. Meditation is sometimes described as a practice of purification. And I feel like maybe that's what I'm hearing you describe here, which is it's counterintuitive, but you have to lean in with some warmth to the difficult aspects of your mind. And in that way, you kind of burn it off. And what's left is the essence love you're describing. You can call burn it off, but I will say open up. And not only the mind, difficult mind, is a difficult feeling. I'm finding more more different between the feeling world and the cognitive mind. I have a short story that one time I was in Malaysia, there's a twin tower and there's a bridge is made out of glass. So I was walking on that. After five steps, wow, I was so scared that almost like I felt that I was dying. So then I went back. Then I thought, oh, maybe something wrong with the bridge. So I checked and the bridge was so safe. A lot of people going and coming, group of people taking photo there. My own friend already went there. Then I thought, wow, the bridge is so safe. My intellectual mind understood my investigation kind of mind that found the bridge is so safe that I thought, oh, now, now is no problem. So I walked second time. I thought, I'm okay. But the same place, same thing happened. And then there's a split between the mind and feeling. Mind says, go, it's safe. The feeling from the body and subtle body says, no, if you go, you will die. So what shall I do now? Shall I listen to the mind? Shall I listen to the feeling? So I went back because I could not walk. Then I thought, oh, this is not the bridge. Something inside of me that I'm afraid of hide triggered by the bridge. So then I felt, oh, I felt very compassion to my imprint. Instead of, wow, we all have different kind of imprint and I have a, that imprint. Then I handshake with that imprint. I chant mantra with that imprint. And then I do all this, what we are talking about. And eventually I got a confidence of feeling, confidence feeling from the feeling says, okay, now you can go. So I try a third time then I can cross the bridge. If I suppress that, I will never cross. If I run away from that, I will never cross the bridge. If I close my mind, someone carry me to cr cross the bridge, that is not a beautiful thing to do. So the best is to, because cognitive mind knows the bridge is safe. The problem is not the reality. The problem is a leftover imprint. And you have to be kind to that. It's in you. It's not like one button you can delete. It's not like that. You have to be there, be patient, 
and it will open up. You have to have a trust that. We need a simple trust to the beautiful monster that it will open up. I like that story. I've been dealing with some claustrophobia on planes recently, and I was talking to a therapist about it. And the last thing she said before we hung up was, don't fight it. <laughs> don't try to delete your fear. It's just going to make it worse. But Danny, let me bring you back in on the scientific tip here. This notion of essence love, fundamental okayness, a capacity to be happy for no reason. Are there data on this? We all have the data. If we've had children, toddlers have it naturally. They're joyous. They love life. They're happy for no reason. What Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin found, he developed a curriculum on kindness for preschoolers. But he did some follow-up research where he found that while children had this kind of joy before they went to school, once they started going to school, they got into a kind of competitive me-first headset. And that killed it. And that's where we live, most of us, most of the time. So what Rinpoche is talking about is getting back to a kind of uh, joyous outlook on life that we have had, we've all known as children. And psychology and research is coming around to this after ignoring it for decades under the rubric, for example, of well-being. There's lots of work going on now on how to help people feel well be well. And that means emotionally as well as biologically. And there are many methods, mindfulness being one of them, for doing this now. Richard Davidson, who I mentioned, has a free app, for example, that helps people do this. And there are several components of it. One of them is, interestingly, having a sense of purpose or meaning in life, that what you're doing matters in some way, seems to help people get to this well-being and I think Rinpoche's methods are, are a very direct path to this. Coming up, more practical tips and tools, including Tsukni Rinpoche's concept of the three speed limits, belly breathing, and his contention that the exhaustion you are experiencing may be less of a function of how much you're working and more of a function of how much your subtle body energy is, to use his term, banging away at you after this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Rinpoche, I think we have time for one more practice, if you'd like to go there. Speed. Speed. Do you want to talk about speed a little bit? Sure. What about speed is interesting to you to discuss at this point? 
<laughs> I also have this speedy problem. So I, I have my own way of dealing with that. And then I found it's very helpful for myself. And I can see almost every of my friends, students, somehow they have a distorted speedy inside their feeling. So I think I want to help myself, help my friends to identify it. There's three kinds of speed limit. One is the cognitive mind thinking fast. For example, someone makes joke, you immediately laugh. It's not like you laugh after one minute. So the fast thinking is very good. And then body, you have to have some kind of speed limit that you move as much as you can. Out of that, you cannot function. But then there is emotional, subtle body related is banging on your mind and your body. For example, if you are flying after three days, the speedy already enter in your mind. You already went to airport a few times. For example, one time I was in UK, I was waiting to go into the restroom, but no one is coming out. So I was waiting, waiting, and at some point someone is coming, start to come out. Then I thought, oh, he's coming out. Oh, he, yeah, he's coming out. So I went to that door. Soon as he opened door, I went inside. Then he said, sir, let me come out first. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, he came out. I went in. Then I, I was, what happening with me? But, wow, I saw that unrealistic speediness in my being. It's, it feels like you don't have enough time. Must rush, must rush, must rush. But when I look at my watch, I have three more hours to go. So if I listen that, it's a distorted speediness. So there's a way you're aware of that. And then awareness makes big difference. And aware of that speediness is not your mind, is not your physical, is energy, subtle body, restlessness, bringing down into your navel, and then relax that. No need to relax your physical. Relax that rigid energy, aware of that, be kind there, relax that. Then you can be speedy, speed enough the physical body. You can think fast, but this restlessness, anxious feeling is not banking on your body. I think most of us, when we got exhaust or burn out, it's not by how much you walk, how much you think. It's like how much this energy is banging on you. So the practice in the book that you recommend as an antidote to speediness, if I understand correctly, is belly breathing. Can you describe how to do that practice? It's a little bit like a French coffee press. So when we have this speedy enter in your system, everything goes up into your head and then churning there. So you're aware of that. And then slowly, almost like a mind scan with a feeling and breathe in. And then while you're breathing in, that restlessness is coming down and relaxing. And then you hold and you breathe in, you hold five seconds or seven seconds there with a relax. Then you breathe out and breathe in again. You feel the burning, restless, hot, make your eyes very small, mouth dry, back hot, uh, you know, like a steam is coming from your head. 
aware of those symptoms and then scan down and breathe in and push down a little bit and hold there. If we do this again and again, then we feel, wow, my head is clear and eyes is also very beautifully rest, a mouth also not so dry, the steam of heat also come down. And then one day you can hold that breath very gently there while you're working, while you're, you know, meditating or anything. There's some guts there. I call a grounded body. Not so much airy, not so much speedy, but sufficient enough to catch whatever you need to do. Danny, I think this kind of deep breathing, there's a lot of research to suggest it really can reset the nervous system. It seems to take you from sympathetic nervous system arousal or anxiety, you know, being uptight, speediness, or is calling it. It actually physiologically shifts you to parasympathetic, which is the rest and recovery mode of the body. And it's been well established physiologically that this occurs. There's some even more interesting data from this, which is that when you make this shift, you get greater heart rate variability, which we don't hear much about, but it turns out heart rate variability is quite adaptive. It means that your heart can go fast, it can go slow, and it can adapt to whatever uh, particular challenge of the moment. So that's a bonus that comes along with this shift, but the main shift is to calm you and clear your mind. Danny and Rinpoche, we're almost out of time, but as we veer toward the end of our time together, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to share, either or both of you? One of the things that I really value about Rinpoche's approach is that he doesn't ignore what modern research in psychology says, but rather includes it and builds on it with the ancient wisdom from Tibet, which has been a working for a thousand years. And Western psychology just really is beginning to learn about what Eastern methodologies for working with the mind can offer us. And he integrates them in what I think is a quite useful, pragmatic, and beautiful way. I really like to see our future generation to reconnect or not lose this basic well-being of essence love. I think they will make very calm. I think it will contribute to the planet crisis because if you feel hollow, you need so much unnecessary stuff. And that I think is very bad for a planet. So if you have basic well-being, then whatever you need, it can be in the right amount. And then I think our planet can survive. And it also will give you some, you know, real expression of love and compassion to the world. And last one is be kind to your beautiful monster. It's not you, but it's part of you right now. Be aware and be kind. And kind in the form of non-judging. Being is kindness. And let it open up by itself. And we must have trust that beautiful monster can open. I just want to say that, kids, is transformational advice in my own experience. 
I might language it a little differently, sometimes talking about high-fiving my demons, this counterintuitive move of showing warmth and kindness toward these inner aspects of our experience that we habitually are taught to struggle with. It can really change the way you're relating to yourself and to the world. And of course, those two are deeply and inextricably linked. So Rinpoche, thank you so much for coming on this show. Thank you for writing the book. Danny, always great to see you. It's always a pleasure to do this with you. Love it. Likewise. Thank you. Invited being here. Happy to see you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Tsongdi Rinpoche and Danny Goleman. I should say I ran into Tsongdi Rinpoche in person here in India, where I'm recording this intro and outro for this episode. After we recorded remotely with Tsongdi Rinpoche, I flew to India to do an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which we'll be bringing to you in the new year. But while I was here, I ran into uh, Tsongdi Rinpoche and got to spend some time with an amazing person. Just really blown away by him in person. Before I go, just a thank you to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. (laughs) 